Welcome to Severn. Um, today we are in week two of a series. Last week we started brand new you, brand, brand new series. We started a series out of Matthew's gospel account <clears throat> called The One We've Waited For. And so this morning we're in week two and we're going to pick it up right where we left off last week. I'm in chapter two, verses 13 through 23. It says, after they were gone, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and escaped to Egypt. He stayed there until Herod's death, so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he'd been outwitted by the wise men, flew into a rage. He gave orders to massacre all the male children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, in keeping with the time he'd learned from the wise men. Then what was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be consoled because they were no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, because those who sought the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and entered the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the region of Galilee. Then he went and settled in a town called Nazareth, to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, that he will be called a Nazarene. This is God's word. <clears throat> this story that we're looking at this morning is a part of the uh, birth narrative of Jesus, although it's, it's not a part of it that people like to spend a lot of time thinking, much less talking about, because of how dark it is. You know, we like, uh, especially around Christmas time, we like talking about, you know, Mary and Joseph and shepherds and angels and the wise men because those are feel-good stories that we've literally constructed nativity scenes of, and we put them up in our homes and all over the place every year. You're not going to find that with a story like this. Uh, You listen to to the words that Matthew uses there. He talks about a massacre. Uh, He talks about uh, rage, uh, mourning and weeping, infanticide. Uh, What this story is about, it's a a narcissistic, out-of-control king that abuses his power to the point that he causes a young family to flee for its life, and to live as refugees in a foreign land. And the question is, especially given that this is the beginning of Matthew's gospel account, why did he include a story like this, and what is it meant to teach us? To answer that question, let me tell you a story. Uh, When I was, I think I was about 19, I was a, uh, the official job title was a canvasser. What that meant was I went door-to-door offering you, the homeowner, free estimates on windows, siding, roofing, and doors. How could you resist? It's free. My job uh, really boiled down to one thing. I was supposed to set up appointments between the homeowner and a salesman from the company that I worked for. And if you were successful in doing that, then you had what was called a lead. And at the end of your shift, you turned in all of your leads to your boss, the canvas manager. And if, um, when the day of that appointment came, if your, your canvas manager reached out to that homeowner and they followed through and actually met with a salesman, I got paid. <clears throat> I'm telling you this story because I made next to no money in the entire time that I worked there because I'm a 
and I can't state this strongly enough, atrocious salesmen, absolutely incapable of doing it. But I worked with some people that were just gifted in that area. This is not a joke. We had one guy who was so good at selling things that he walked into a brand new neighborhood with homes that were literally just a couple of months old and somehow convinced somebody that they needed new windows. I could never, that is, as sure as I'm standing here, that happened. And I could never do anything like that. And so I, you know, I looked around and, and noticed that a lot of my esteemed colleagues were generating a lot more leads than me. And I was curious, why is that? And it turns out a, a very a very few of them, just a hand, maybe a handful, were actually great salesmen. Um, but, but with everybody else, it wasn't that they were great salesmen. It's that they just basically lied their faces off to the homeowner and completely misrepresented the process that they were signing up for. They would say things like, uh, hey, our, our representatives, you never called them salesmen. You said, hey, I'm, uh, the representatives from this company, they're the nicest people in the world. It's a low-pressure environment. Even if you don't buy anything, it's going to be a really valuable experience. The whole thing will be over in 10, 15 minutes all of which I knew was a total lie. Uh, our representatives were incredibly pushy. They didn't take no for an answer. The process usually lasted over an hour. It was like pulling teeth. And so basically my philosophy was when I knocked at a door, assuming the homeowner didn't slam it in my face, which happened more often than not, I would just basically say, listen, you better really want what we're offering if you're going to sign up for this, because I knew that our representatives were not easy to deal with and, and certainly you'd have to chase them out of your, your house sort of thing. So my, my Canvas manager noticed and pointed out in a staff, mo- uh, staff meeting, which I was flattered, pointed out that uh, he noticed when I generated leads, which albeit was quite rare, but when I did generate leads, uh, they, they had like a 99% chance of working out because he said, these were his words, he said that, that I do what he calls blowing it out of the door, which is basically just being completely upfront. Uh, with the homeowner about what exactly they're signing up for. I tell you that story to make the case that um, the way I understand this story, Matthew is including this toward the beginning of his gospel account so as to blow Christianity out at the door. Uh, he's, He's including this account on the front end of Jesus's life and on the front end of his account just to let you know exactly what you're signing up for when you sign up to follow Jesus. Matthew was a tax collector uh, before he started following Jesus, and he had a pretty cushy life carved out for himself as a tax collector. There was basically no accountability, and because you were backed by the Roman government, you could steal as much money as you wanted as long as you checked your conscience at the door, which is what tax collectors did. The point is, Matthew had a cushy lifestyle before he met Jesus. And while the life that Jesus called him into was certainly far more rewarding and fulfilling and meaningful than the life Jesus called him out of, Matthew knew more than most that coming to Jesus and following Jesus came at a great um, price, at a great cost. Uh, And so I say all this to basically speak to three groups of people. If if you're listening to this and you're trying to decide whether or not you want to follow Jesus, which I know that's where some of us are coming from, or if, if you're listening to this and you just recently made that decision to follow Jesus, maybe it's only been a couple weeks, a couple months, a couple years, you're still trying to wrap your head around what exactly you signed up for. But even if you're here and you've been walking with Jesus for, for years, for decades, but you have this, this nagging sense that maybe Jesus is calling you to follow him in a newer and deeper way, I have good news, um, I believe that this story is tailor-made for you where you are. And so the question I want to answer today is, what exactly are we signing up for when we sign up to follow Jesus? I see three answers to that question in this passage, and they're going to serve as, as our three main ideas today. Uh, the first answer is our first main idea. It's number one. The presence of Jesus brings hostility. 
So read verse 16 with me again. It says, Then Herod, when he saw that he'd been outwitted by the wise men, he flew into a rage, and he gave orders to massacre all the male children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, in keeping with the time he'd learned from the wise men. So if you were here with us last week, you know these wise men made this journey from the east. They got to Jerusalem in search of this king that had just been born. And so when Herod got wind of that, he consulted some Old Testament Hebrew scholars, and they came across a a prophecy in the book of Micah that said a king would come from the the little humble town of Bethlehem. So that's where the the, the wise men went. But just before they set out, Herod said, hey, uh, when you find this king, make sure you let me know where exactly he is so that I can come and worship him as well, which of course was a lie. And so when Herod realized that the wise men were not returning and they had kind of outwitted him, uh, like the text says, he flew into this rage and he issued a decree that that every uh, infant, two years old, male infant, two years old and under in and around Bethlehem would be murdered so as to eliminate any kind of threat to his throne. Now, if you know anything about Herod, Herod personally, or the family that that he came from and the family that came from him, you know, this is completely in keeping with his nature. But the reason I'd offer to you that Matthew was including this in here, one of the things this story does is it gets across this idea that when, when Jesus arrives, uh, sure, on the one hand, we have other passages of Scripture that say Jesus brings with him peace and love and joy and hope and all those things. However, that's not all he brings. This passage makes it incredibly clear that with Jesus also comes conflict. And this is a theme that we see repeated over and over again all throughout the New Testament. So, for instance, if you flip over to the beginning of Luke's gospel account, we have this scene where where Mary and Joseph are taking the the, uh, infant Jesus to the temple and have an interaction with an old man named Simeon there. And I want to read to you what Simeon says. He sees baby Jesus that you can kind of picture is, is maybe, you know, in Mary's arms at the time. And through divine revelation, he gets a glimpse. He, he, he understands who Jesus is. And so here's what he says in Luke chapter 1. He <clears throat> says, now, now, Master, pardon me, this is actually Luke chapter 2. It says, now, Master, you can dismiss your slave in peace as you promised, for my eyes have seen your salvation. You've prepared it in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people, Israel. Now, there, Simeon is obviously talking to God. But then he looks at Mary, and I want to read to you what he says to her. He says, Indeed, this child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed and a sword will pierce your own soul, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Can you imagine what it would be like holding your newborn son in your arms and having somebody come up to you and say, that child will cause the rise and fall of many, and he will be a sign that will be opposed. Now, just based on Simeon's words there, you would come away with this idea that, okay, so what that's getting across is that there's going to be some people in the world that are kind of like Herod. You know, there's going to be some people that, for whatever reason, their temperament, their upbringing, whatever, they really have an issue with God. They they really kind of hate God. They really are offended by Jesus. And you can look out into the world or social media and whatever, and, and, and sure, some people are like that. But the Bible goes further than that. The Bible doesn't say that some people are like that. It actually makes a pretty stunning claim that absolutely every human heart is naturally like that. Because uh, Paul, in Romans 8, 
verse 7 says that the mindset of the flesh, which is basically his way of saying that every human heart in its natural state, Paul says, is hostile toward God and is incapable of submitting to God on its own. That's not a, just the King Herods, just the crazies, just the lunatics. That's every single human heart since Genesis chapter 3 onward. And the question is, well, why would that be? Why would there be a natural hostility in every human heart toward God? And the answer is found in what we talked about last week. You remember when the wise men arrived in Jerusalem and they were looking for Jesus, they didn't just say, we're looking for Jesus. They said, we're looking for the one who was born king of the Jews. They, hear that. They weren't just looking for a prophet. They weren't just looking for a teacher. They weren't just looking for a good example. They, they came in search of a king. Now, right after that, it says Herod was suddenly quite disturbed. And I don't think it's difficult to understand why. Because Herod was the king. Herod liked being the king. Herod desired to protect his kingship. And so when he heard that this Jesus is actually a king, he immediately went into this mode of doing everything that he could to get rid of Jesus, seeing his authority and his sovereignty and his kingship as a threat to that of his own. So understanding that, the reason that Romans chapter 8 can say that every human heart uh, has this hostility toward God, what it's saying is the same thing that we see in King Herod on display, that exists to one degree or another in every human heart and has since Genesis chapter 3 because at the end of the day, if we know ourselves at all and we're willing to be honest, deep within all of our hearts is found this desire to be our own masters and our own rulers and our own saviors and our own kings that define the parameters and call the shots of our lives. In other words, and this is Matthew's point here, with Jesus comes conflict. When the true king arrives, there's going to be conflict. The question is, what do we do with this idea? And I want to offer you three implications. One is for Christians. Uh, The second one is for people who are considering Christianity. And then the third one is actually just for for everybody, regardless of where you're coming from. First off, what do you do with, what should this idea mean for us as Christians? What this idea means, one implication is that as Christians... We should assume and we should be on the hunt for the residual hostility in our hearts toward the kingship and the authority of God. To believe that that just went away the day that we started following Jesus is foolishness that's going to set us up for failure. Now, to explain what I mean, I want to read to you an exchange from a book I came across a couple of years ago called Sacred Fire. Uh, in the book, it's right at the beginning of the book, there's this exchange between a famous writer and this old monk whose name was Father um, Makarios. So the writer asked this old monk, he says, do you still wrestle with the devil, Father Makarios? The monk thought for a while and he said, not any longer, my child. I've grown old now and he's grown old with me. He doesn't have the strength. Now I wrestle with God. Uh, Now that was kind of shocking for this writer to hear because he looked at this monk and he thought, man, that's a guy that he's the holiest man I know. He kind of doesn't struggle with sin like the rest of us is what he thought in his own mind. So he asked the question, he said, with God, you wrestle with God and you hope to win? And listen to how the monk answered. He said, no, my child, I hope to lose. My bones remain with me still and they continue to resist. And I just offer to you that that anybody who grows in God, anybody who develops a deep level of spiritual self-awareness 
can speak in the same way that that monk did. When that, when that monk, when Father Macario said, my, my, my bones remain with me and they continue to resist, what he's saying is that he can look deep inside of himself and acknowledge that there is still, even after all these years, there's this wrestling match going on between him and God. And even though there's a part of him that wants God to win, there's a part of him that still resists and still collides with God and still clashes in this battle of the wills. And in case you're wondering where that's at in the Bible, I think Romans chapter 7 is the most famous place that this condition of the human heart is put on display. In Romans chapter 7, Paul says, and I, I think this is probably one of the most relatable chapters in the entire Bible, Paul, writing to the Romans, says, and I'm paraphrasing, sometimes I don't even understand myself. Because Paul says, the good that I want to practice, I don't do that, but instead I do the very thing I hate. And so I say this to say that, that for those of us that are followers of Jesus, this idea that Matthew's laying out in this story should cause us to move through life with this humble assumption that there is more residual hostility in our lives to the kingship and the lordship of Jesus Christ than we're aware of. And so much of our job from the day we begin following Jesus to the day he calls us home is to be on the hunt for that and to bring that before God in the presence of prayer so that we can deal with it by applying the gospel to it, all right? That's the first implication. The second one uh, is for people who are considering Christianity. And what I'd offer to you, based on what we see in, in this account, is that if, if you're in this place where you're considering whether or not, you know, you believe the truth claims of Christianity and, and whether or not you want to commit to Christianity yourself, I would just ask you, based on this story, to accept and acknowledge that you are not objective. You actually can't be. Here's what I mean. I came across this quote a couple years ago, uh, and this is a great place to use it. This is from Thomas Nagel, who is a philosopher, and he used to be a professor at NYU, who, as you're going to see in a moment here, was not a believer. But listen to the honesty. He says, I want atheism to be true. And I am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. Now listen to this. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. My guess is that this cosmic authority problem is not rare and he ends by saying, and I'm curious whether there's anyone who is genuinely indifferent as to whether there is a God. And he's absolutely correct. Right? What, what I'd offer you here is that no human being is genuinely, we don't, even have the, we don't even have the option to be genuinely objective and far enough removed from the situation to consider the truth claims of Christianity and the, and the reality and the existence of God or, or the truth claims of Jesus Christ in particular, we don't have the ability to uh, um, approach that and consider that and weigh that and measure that in a genuinely objective way because we're just too close to it. There's far too much at stake. And what I mean by that is, is just consider if the God of the Bible is real, which I, of course, believe he is as somebody who teaches the Bible every seven days, if the God of the Bible is real, if he actually is our creator and he actually is our sustainer and he actually has entered into human history to live for us, die for us, rise again for us in order to redeem us, then what that means at the very least is we owe him absolutely everything. And therefore, we don't get to maintain a white knuckle grip on our lives anymore. We, we got to hand the keys to the car over to him. And so no human being can approach 
Christianity and the implications thereof in a genuinely, coolly objective way. And I just ask you, if you're you know, in a place this morning where you're, 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 you're trying to figure out if that's what you want to do, just be on to yourself enough to realize that there's at least something in your heart, if you got real honest, that would say the same thing that Thomas Nagel says, because we want to maintain control of our lives. All right? That's the second implication. The third one before we move on to our next idea this one isn't for, for Christians or people considering Christianity. This is for all of us. Let me just zoom out here and point something out. In Matthew chapter 2, Matthew tells us two stories back to back that could not, on the surface, could not look any more different. Right in the first half of chapter 2, we talked about it last week, you've got the wise men uh, who seek Jesus in order to worship him. And then in this story, you've got Herod who seeks Jesus in order to murder him. What Matthew's doing in putting both of those stories back to back is saying at the end of the day, follow me here, those are the only two responses to Jesus that make any sense whatsoever. At the end of the day, when you and I understand who Jesus is and what he claimed and the implications of his claims, what it ultimately boils down to is there's only two things to be done with Jesus. You kill him or you crown him. You fall at his feet to worship him or you do absolutely everything you can to get rid of him. The only response to Jesus that doesn't make any sense and completely lacks any kind of intellectual integrity is unfortunately what most of us do most of our lives, which is to kind of look at Jesus with this mild, sort of lukewarm admiration. You, know, you hear a lot of people say, you know, you, you don't want to be too fanatical about Christianity. I wouldn't get too invested in it. But, you know, Jesus, he seems like a nice guy. You know, he had some good ideas. He was pretty kind to people. You know, he bucked the establishment. I, you know, I like Jesus. That option is not an option when you actually consider who Jesus is. My point is, when you understand who Jesus is, you, you have to have an extreme reaction to him. If you don't have an extreme reaction to him, it's very simply because you simply have not understood who he is yet. And if that's where you're coming from this morning, I would encourage you, please stick around specifically for this series because Matthew wrote this entire account so as to say, let me show you who Jesus is. So the first idea that we can pull out of this story is that the presence of Jesus brings hostility. The second and the third idea, I promise you, are going to be much shorter. <clears throat> the second idea is this. Number two, the presence of Jesus brings humility. Now, here's what we know about Mary and Joseph. And you kind of got to hop over to Luke's gospel account to put all this together. But Mary and Joseph, hang on to this detail, were originally from Nazareth. Right, late in Mary's pregnancy, a census came out that forced Joseph and Mary to go from Nazareth to Bethlehem, which is where they famously delivered Jesus. And then in this story, like we're looking at, they had to flee Bethlehem in the middle of the night with newborn baby Jesus in order to live as refugees in Egypt until Herod died. When Herod died, they came back. But notice, they didn't attempt to go back to Nazareth, even where they were from. They wanted to go back to Judea. But they couldn't do that because they were afraid of Herod's son who was reigning in his place, Archelaus, who was a guy that was exactly as brutal as his father was. And so they had to relocate back to Nazareth. What I'm, what I'm driving at there and what I'd ask you to see is Mary and Joseph only wound up settling in Nazareth and Jesus only grew up in Nazareth because they were absolutely forced to. It wasn't their choice. It's just what they had to do. The question is, why is that? And the answer is because Nazareth in that day and age... Uh, had an absolutely terrible reputation. You probably heard something ab about this before, but in, in um, the beginning of John's gospel account, we have this interesting exchange where Philip 
meets the adult Jesus and kind of the beginning of his ministry, and Philip is, is immediately enamored with Jesus. He recognizes there's something different about this guy. And he starts to believe maybe he is the one that the Old Testament kind of leaves us looking for. Maybe he's going to fix everything. So he runs to his friend Nathaniel, and he says, Nathaniel, I think I've found the one that we've been waiting for. I think this is the guy that's going to put everything back together. His name's Jesus. He's from Nazareth. And the first words out of Nathaniel's mouth are, it doesn't have anything to do with Jesus. His first comment is, you're telling me something good could come out of Nazareth. And, and the, the purpose of that exchange, the reason that's included in John chapter 1 is to show us how strong of a stigma was associated with that place in Jesus' day and age. So just understand that, that in a time and in a, in a culture where everybody's doing everything they can to get out of Nazareth, this is important, Joseph and Mary, simply because of their relationship with Jesus, were forced to go toward Nazareth. That question, why is Matthew telling us that? What, what, what are we supposed to see here? Uh, in last week's story, the first half of, of Matthew chapter 2, and, and while I walk through this, just try to, try to pretend you've never heard the gospel of Matthew before. You know, you're reading this account, and you're, you're coming to understand for the first time in your life who this Jesus is and why Matthew left his perfectly good career as a tax collector to go follow him, and why is everybody talking about him? In the first half of Matthew 2, you have this, this scene where, where Joseph and, and Mary and Jesus have these, these wise men, these incredibly wise, impossibly rich leaders seeking them out so as essentially to dump treasure at their feet, gold, frankincense, myrrh, stuff that was extremely valuable, was worth a lot of money. And so if, you were, if you're reading this account for the first time and you read the first half of Matthew chapter 2, just be honest, you're thinking, finally, a religion I can get on board with. So, so what that must mean is if I connect with Jesus, if I relate to Jesus, then my life's going to start going great. You know, people are going to recognize me and dump treasure at my feet. And then here we have in the second half of chapter 2 here, this same Mary and Joseph, because of their relationship with Jesus, were forced to flee in the middle of the night for their lives to a foreign land and live as refugees for an unknown amount of time. And then when they get back home... They're forced to go to Nazareth, the place where everybody, including they themselves, were trying to get away from, all because of their connection to Jesus. Here's, here's the idea here. If all of that was true for Mary and Joseph because of their relationship with Jesus, then it shouldn't surprise us when it turns out to be true for us because of our relationship with Jesus. Stated differently, Matthew's recording these details so as to show us that it should not surprise us when because of our relationship with Jesus, we find that God causes our lives to take twists and turns that we didn't see coming, when, when God confounds our wisdom, and when God leads us into situations and places that we would have never chosen for ourselves. <clears throat> There's this great line from the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> What's a sermon without the Lord of the Rings? Where Gandalf is speaking to Frodo. And he says, it's a dangerous business, Frodo, going out your door. You step onto the road, and if you don't keep your feet, there's no knowing where you might be swept off to. And I, I read that to you because in the same way what, what Matthew is saying here, what all the gospel writers are saying, what the last 2,000 years of church history is telling us, is that at the end of the day, it is, frankly, it is a dangerous thing, stepping out of our small, self-centered little lives in order to follow Jesus of Nazareth. Because when we do, 
and I don't know that anybody could have spoken with more authority about this than Matthew himself, the day that we begin following Jesus, we quite frankly have no idea how far we're going to have to go, what God's going to have to lead us through, and how much it's going to cost us in order to make us more like him. So the second thing we see here is that the presence of Jesus not only brings hostility, but secondly, it brings humility. So let me just pause and recap here before we get to our third and final idea. We're almost done. But just consider what Matthew's laid out for us. On the one hand, this account is showing us that none of us in our natural state even necessarily want to surrender to Jesus. Secondly, what this account shows us is that if we do, it's going to make our lives, at least occasionally, incredibly uncomfortable. Uh, I just point this out to say, Matthew is probably about as good a salesman as I was. He's He's not going out of his way to make this look attractive to anybody. So the two questions that I have when I read this account are, first and foremost, how are we going to give our lives to Jesus if everything in our hearts are set up to resist his kingship and his rule and his reign? How are we going to do it? And then the second question is, why would we even want to if it's going to cost us so much? And the answer to both of those questions, actually, is our third and final idea during our time together this morning. It's number three, that the presence of Jesus brings not just hostility, not just humility, but ultimately it brings finality. Now, here's what I mean. I don't know if you caught this, but three times in just the verses we're looking at this morning, three times in these verses alone, Matthew goes out of his way to explain how Jesus fulfilled something from the Old Testament. Three times, Matthew is showing the reader how Jesus um, resolves some some kind of unresolved plot line of the, the Old Testament. But look what he says in verse 15. It says, he, being Jesus, stayed there, Egypt, He stayed there until Herod's death so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt I called my son. Now, in your Bible, you'll probably notice there's a little footnote there that that directs you to the Old Testament book of Hosea because what Matthew's quoting here is is a prophecy from Hosea chapter 11. And in looking at what Matthew says here, here's what you'd expect. You would expect that Hosea in chapter 11 is kind of looking through the eyes of faith and, and, and talking about how one day God's going to call this messianic figure, this savior, this deliverer out of Egypt to save his people. But, but this is something that really puzzled commentar- commentators for years. If you go to Hosea 11, that's not what you find. Instead, all Hosea is talking about is the fact that, that God delivered Israel, the nation that he, he frequently in the Old Testament referred to as his son. Hosea is just talking about how, yeah, God led the nation of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. All right, now, now let me pause. I talked about last week, you know, when we kind of introduced the series, that Matthew was writing specifically to people who had a pretty robust understanding of the Old Testament. That's why he quotes the Old Testament so much. So if you read this prophecy uh, that's about, you know, the the nation of Israel, you know, God calling them out of Egypt, every, every one of Matthew's original readers knows the story. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know what I'm about to say as well, that God, in the Old Testament, he caused the nation of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And he, you know, he parts the Red Sea, and he brings them into the wilderness, and he provides for them, uh, and he protects them, and he, and he eliminates obstacles for them, and he fights their battles for them. He allows them to, to, to see victories that they had absolutely no business seeing in and of their own power or wisdom or might or strength or multitude or anything like that. He reveals his law to them. You know, God desires to dwell with them. And then he brings them into the promised land. And everything God did for Israel, 
Everything God did for that nation, he did so that they might be this beacon of light through which God's salvation would enter the world. All right, you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12 when God meets with Abraham and he promised Abraham, Abraham, if you follow me, if you trust me, God said, I'm going to make your name great and I'm going to bless you. But the whole reason God said he'd bless Abraham is because I want to bless all families of the earth through you. So the whole creation and God's dealings with the nation of Israel was in the hope that they would be a beacon of light that would bring his salvation into the world. Now, you get to the end of the Old Testament, and you see, obviously, Israel completely failed to do that. They gave their hearts to other gods. You know, they forgot the faithfulness of God, no matter how many times he demonstrated it. They adopted pagan practices. And and basically, the Old Testament ends with the nation of Israel in shambles. It's brought into exile. They're enslaved. They're oppressed. And everybody's wondering, is God done with us? If that was his plan of salvation and that didn't work out because we screwed it up, then is he just done with us altogether? That's the, that's the biggest question on the mind of, of Matthew and all people in that day. It, it, all, I say all that just to understand the gravity of what Matthew's saying here. You, know, you, you've, you maybe have heard something along the lines of what I'm getting ready to tell you, but none of the first readers of Matthew's gospel account had ever considered this. When Matthew says that God calling The nation of Israel out of Egypt is something that ultimately finds its fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. Matthew is telling his readers that Jesus Christ has entered into human history to be what Israel failed to be. He's entered into human history to be what all of us know we have failed to be. That Jesus Christ has come down here to live this perfect life that satisfies the righteousness of God and at the end of his life to satisfy the justice and the wrath of God so that through Jesus he could bring into this world the salvation of God. All of that to say, I'll put it to you this way, Matthew is explaining in his gospel account that every unresolved plot line of the Old Testament and every unresolved plot line of your and my life finds its resolution in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what this means. Now, to explain that, I want to, for the second week in a row now, we're almost done, but for the second week in a row, I'm going to read you a quote from To Kill a Mockingbird. I mentioned last week I'm reading classic literature this year, so... If you show up, you're going to hear a lot of quotes. So worship team, you can come on up. We've arrived at the end of our time together. But let me set this up. In the book To Kill a Mockingbird, Atticus Finch is the father of two young children. Their names are Scout and and, uh, a young girl, and then Jem, a boy who's a few years older. And Atticus is one of the most admirable figures I've ever come across in literature. Every once in a while, I read about a character that I I admire so deeply, By the time the book's over, I just wish that they were real so I could meet them. That was Atticus Finch for me. And the book, in a lot of ways, is a coming-of-age story for for his two children, where they're they're growing up and they're opening their eyes and they're beginning to see things for what they are. On the one hand, they're beginning to see the racism and the injustice of their town for what it is. But on the other hand, they're beginning to see the greatness and the wisdom of their father for who he is. And anyway, um, at the beginning of the book... They kind of, they see their father as, as, as passive or maybe even weak. They, they kind of don't understand who he is, but there's a number of moments in the book where they're starting to see him differently. And you know, I'm not going to give you any spoilers in case you read it for yourself, but there's this, there's this point in the book where something profound happens and it leaves the children kind of reeling and trying to make sense of what they're seeing. And they have a next door neighbor named Miss Maudie who invites them over and she wants to talk to the children and, and try to help them explain who their father is. 
I want to read you this exchange, and I think you'll see why I wanted to end this way. She said, I simply want to tell you that there are some men in the world who were born to do our unpleasant jobs for us. Your father's one of them. And Jim, the oldest son, is wrestling with what he's seeing, and it doesn't make sense to him, and it's challenging his assumptions. And he says, I always thought Maycomb folks, that's the county that they were from, he said, I always thought Maycomb folks were the best folks in the world. At least that's what they seem like. And here's what she says. And the first time I read this, I knew I was going to use it in a sermon. She says, we're the safest folks in the world. We are so rarely called on to be Christians. But when we are, we've got men like Atticus to go for us. <clears throat> now, I don't know where Harper Lee was at with Christianity or what she believed. What I know is that the way that she talked about Atticus Finch is precisely the way that the Bible talks about Jesus Christ. Because every single one of us knows at the end of the day that we have failed to be what we're called to be. And so what we need more than anything else is not someone who will motivate us, uh, not someone who will inspire us, not somebody who will educate us. We need somebody who will go for us. And that is precisely what the Bible says Jesus Christ has come to do, to go for us not just as an example, but as a substitute to stand in our place, to be what we know we could not be, and pay the price for what we know we have been. And when a human heart sees Jesus Christ, when we see Jesus Christ doing that for us, two things will happen. First off, it will create in us the desire to hand our lives over to this king, knowing that that's the only hands in which our lives will ever be safe. But secondly, Seeing Jesus for who he is and what he's done will give us the ability to follow him with joy even when he leads us to places that we would have not chosen to go on our own because no matter what happens, we'll know Jesus really is the one we've waited for. That's it. That's all. Let me pray for us. Father God, I'd ask uh, at the conclusion of this message that you would just help us see Jesus clearly. Please help us to see him the way that Matthew invites us to see him as the fulfillment of everything that remains unresolved in the Old Testament and the fulfillment of everything that will always remain unresolved in our lives apart from him. Please help us to see his beauty and his wisdom and his courage and his strength and his substitution. Please help us to know what it means that Jesus has gone for us. He has stood in our place as our substitute until it melts our hearts breaks down all of our defenses, and enables us to follow him with joy no matter the cost. It's in his name we pray. And God's people said, amen.